0: Hello and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast where we cover the news of the community and learn from each other. My name is Mark Erickson.
1: I'm Cade Ward. And I'm David Bernheisel.
0: Let's jump into the news.
1: Dashbit shuts down Bypec. Uh Sad news but the good news is Silverlining silver lining is that they open sourced it. So if you're ever interested in going deep diving and into some source code that a lot of smart people you know wrote that's a pretty cool thing to check out and we have a lot to thank for for dashbit and bytepack bytepack specifically because there was a lot of stuff that came out of bytepack for example phoenix gen auth was extracted out of it uh they introduced live view integration testing out of it nimble totp that's the time-based one-time passwords there's a little library there that came out of it so lots of good things came out of bytepack so we're really we really ought to be thankful for it even if it is uh shut down
0: Yeah. And when Jose Valin was asked why it was being shut down, he said, quote, maybe it could work, but it would require tons of work. Say two engineers for four to six months for new features, more package managers, third-party payments, distributed ops, etc. We decided we would rather just put this effort into open source software. So I thought that was really interesting. Just He's being very transparent, which I really appreciate as well.
2: Yeah, it's not every day that you get to See a code base by the author of the language itself, right? So I've been spending a lot of time diving into it. It's really interesting to see how straightforward it is. It looks like they use generators for most of the stuff. Um, you know, contexts are pretty straightforward, but still there's a lot of interesting stuff in there. So if you're looking for a good example of kind of how to organize your app, I would definitely give this code base a look. I noticed they
1: used umbrellas. So if you're curious to how they used umbrellas, go look, go look at it. And since this, uh, since they're focusing on open source software, which generally has no income, <laughs> if you're interested in providing um, you know, the, the Elixir and Erlang ecosystem some funding for all of this open source software that they are producing, uh, high quality stuff on top of that, they're not taking donations directly, but they do recommend the Erlang Ecosystem Foundation or you can check out an, another feature that they introduced, mixhex.sponsor for those individual packages. Go look for some open source packages to to sponsor.
0: Um, it's a lot of work. And in a little bit of NERVs Roundup news, sometimes there can be a question around how to set up a development environment, working with Nerves, where you're trying to separate your host operating system from the operating system that's going to be running on the IoT device. So there's a really helpful post and resources about setting up a Nerves environment using Docker and VS Code. So there's a link to that in the show notes. And for those interested in playing around with Nerves and the embedded space in general, Frank Hunlith updated his Elixir Circuits Quickstart project. So the Quickstart project aims to create a firmware that lets you try out Elixir Circuits on real hardware without needing to create a NERVS project. So it just lets you get an environment going where you can kind of start playing with it and getting excited about it.
2: Also just wanted to give a shout out to Aaron Renner, who was recently added as a new core developer on the Phoenix project. He's responsible for creating the Phoenix Gen Auth package that was recently extracted from the Bytepack code base itself. So congratulations to him and thank you, Aaron, for all your work. Uh, speaking of Phoenix, Phoenix View is being extracted from Phoenix itself.
1: Um, Phoenix View and Phoenix templates um, is included with that. Uh, this is uh this is interesting, this is important to me, at least, uh, because this will help with some dependencies and projects like like bamboo or mailers or anything that needs to render HTML, but doesn't need to care about the the rest of the web framework, basically, right? So they use Phoenix as like an engine to create a view. Uh, And so now they don't have to require Phoenix itself. They can just require Phoenix HTML uh, or Phoenix view now in this case. Uh, So
0: cool move. I'm glad to see that happening. And finally, Ecto enum support is being added to the Phoenix generators. So Mike Bins, who we talked with in episode 11 about what he was doing with Ectoenum, enum Mike was extending some of the Phoenix Generators to have support for describing an ecto-enum. So that might be something worth checking out too. Check out the show notes for links to all of these things to follow up with. And that's it for the news. Today, I'm really excited to have our special guest on. And this is Jonathan. Jonathan Allen is an instructor at a college, and we're really happy to have him here. I ran into Jonathan some time ago back through our meetup and he came with some students and we got to talking and, and that's kind of how we met. I really wanted him to come on so we could talk about Elixir in the education space. So Jonathan, welcome
3: to the show. Thank you very much. Happy to be here.
0: So Jonathan, before we get into all the really cool stuff about just teaching Elixir in an education space, maybe you can tell us a little bit about yourself, where you live, uh, what kind of work you're doing.
3: I live in the middle of the state of Utah, kind of in the middle of nowhere. I teach at Snow College, which is in Ephraim, Utah, two, two and a half hours south of Salt Lake City. It's a very rural area. A lot of you probably went to high schools that were bigger than our than our college. But we recently got a uh, – the, the state legislature approved us to, to have a four-year software engineering degree. So generally, Snow College is a two-year junior college. But uh, we do have a couple of four-year programs, one of which is our software engineering degree. So I started teaching there oh, about three years ago. And uh, I, I teach several of the classes in that in that degree program.
0: Nice. Now, as I understand it, you came from having a more like a working experience with software development. Is that right?
3: Yeah. The previous 17 or 18 years, I had been working my way at a small life insurance company down in Arizona. Uh, started out as a junior developer there and kind of worked my way up through and got to wear a lot of different hats working at a small company.
0: What I like about that is I know some of my favorite instructors when I was in like computer science programs were people who had practical working experience. It was not just the academic, you know, here's an idea. It's like, well, this is is what's actually important. This is how it actually works in a business environment. So I think that's great. So one of the questions I had is how did you first get drawn to Elixir as a language?
3: I finished my master's degree back in, I don't know, 2010 or so, and shortly after that joined a software engineering reading group because I wanted to continue furthering my education and and deepening my skills. And as one of the books that we went through in that group was The Seven Languages in Seven Weeks. And anyway, in, in the discussions of that group, we learned about the awesomeness of Erlang and I was really impressed by it. So fast forward a couple of years later, right? And I, I come across Elixir that is far more, at least to me, approachable and looks really fun, but it still has all the incredible superpowers of Erlang. Uh, one of the favorite activities that we have or that we had, you know, pre COVID at the, in our program was taking a group of interested students coming from a rural college, right? Would, would drive up to the big city and attend different user groups and uh, and meetups up there uh, and when we saw that there was a an elixir meetup we attended and um, that's where i met mark and so over the next couple of months this idea of of taking elixir and using that as the basis for my distributed systems class kind of grew and got more appealing and more exciting
0: Jonathan, one of the things that I remember when we were first talking about your interest in doing this distributed class was the need to have approval within the college uh, of a governing body to say that it's okay to have this language in this class and it was a kind of a new thing for me to see that from the outside because I've never seen that from the in, you know the inside workings of a college. so can you give of us a little bit of a background so how new classes like that how they go about being even offered
3: there's kind of a few different levels of Oversight to try and help us have a, a consistent and high-value program. Probably the most important, at least from my vantage point, is our advisory board. We have we meet once a semester with a group of industry professionals and 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 leaders of large organizations that ideally hire lots of software engineering graduates, and we talk with them about how we're developing our program and what we're emphasizing and some of the different types of projects that we're working on, and we get input from them on what's important and and what's relevant and, and what they're looking for in, in graduates so that we make sure that we're producing graduates that, that are valuable and, and sought after in the marketplace. And so one of the items of feedback that we got from them is that they would prefer our graduates have deep knowledge in a fewer number of languages and frameworks rather than a real broad but shallow understanding suggesting that that we take on a, a different language in one of our classes kind of you know went went against some of that direction and so I, I felt it necessary to justify why I felt this was you know doing elixir would be valuable and beneficial even though it doesn't necessarily fit in with with some of the direction that we receive from our advisory board it, at least not at a I, I think it still fits in the overall scope and and what they're wanting but Anyhow, I, I talked it over with the other faculty and and kind of made the the case for for why elixir and the beam and OTP are are such great things to have an understanding with and and kind of got some faculty buy in and took it to our department chair and and had a similar conversation and and thankfully it really turned into a well if you feel strongly about it then go for it. I think most of the homework I did was to really make sure I was selling myself that that this was valuable enough to kind of steal a class from the program, right? Because there's only so many classes that that the students get to take when they go through this program and to take a full semester of one of those classes and, and work on a different language. It's not something you do lightly.
2: I remember having a conversation similar to this with one of my, I didn't do computer science. I did information systems but i still had to take a few programming classes and so i was in a dot net class And i remember having a conversation with that professor about we weren't doing mvc mvc at the time was the new thing and everyone was doing it we were doing forms so i remember having a conversation with him like why aren't we doing model view controller and learning that like that's what the industry's moving to right now and he's like it's just it's too hard. I don't want to have to. It's going to take too long for the students to catch on to it. And I just remember being like a little disappointed that we weren't taking advantage of like what the industry was moving towards and like getting on that. And instead we were like behind. And now you'd have to go to go to, into the industry and learn it there rather than like be prepared and already know what most people are using.
0: I think that's the challenge, right? Any kind of education like that is like, like a trade school is more like, this is how you do this thing with this model of a furnace, right? You know, it's it's very much more specific. And then I think university tends to try to be a little bit more understanding the concepts and things like that. So I can I can understand the difficulty of that balance. So Jonathan, what do you think about any of that?
3: There definitely are trade-offs. I for better or for worse, I think I um I definitely gravitate towards the new and the shiny. Right and and so if there's something new, I'm I'm inclined to teach it. Uh, that can have the unfortunate side effect of not having enough time to really mature a set of of lessons and activities. And right, because cause there's if you teach the same thing for ten years, you can get really really good at teaching that. Uh, so you, certainly you can go too far in either direction. And and I agree with you, Mark. That is a difficult balance to achieve. I think some of the gap
1: um, between that the you know teaching concepts versus teaching uh like practical specific technical things i think a lot of commercial boot camps code boot camps have seen that gap and tried to fill it sometimes badly sometimes really well (laughs) how do you think you know colleges universities and now this this new i I guess i'll I'll call them trade schools because i guess that's what it is but what do you think of these trade schools? You know, these boot camps, you, you think that's a a thing that's here to stay something that needs, you know, help to, you know, what do you, what do you think about them?
3: Oh, I think the pie is plenty big for everyone. Um, I, I think different <laughs> people learn best in different ways and different people have different levels of availability, right? Not, not everyone can do a four year college program. I think at at the same time, not every college program is necessarily worth the four years. Right in in some instances, maybe you're better off going a, a different route. Uh, hopefully, what what we're trying to do is get that balance where you still get the the well-rounded, you know, general education, the full bachelor's degree, broad experience, yet still having applicable and and market valuable challenging exciting opportunities to learn languages and work on projects that that maybe you wouldn't get in a a boot camp or some other college's program.
1: Certainly, I figure that boot camps don't have as much uh academic I'll call it red tape, academic red tape to go through. Right? As long as they can pay their own bills commercially, <laughs> I can teach whatever they want, but the trade-off is the students don't really get any real you know real certification for that they get they get a piece of paper saying you that you, basically you paid for this course, and you have to trust that that course was worth worth something and so there's some boot camps out there that have made a name for themselves um you know that that folks would recognize uh, I myself went through one of them and I got lucky in, in inside that boot camp there were really terrible teachers, but there were also really great teachers, and I got lucky with one of those great ones. But some of my cohorts, they got the bad end of the stick. <laughs> it was a, it was a real big gamble for, you know, fifteen thousand dollars or something like that. But yeah, it was also like a sixteen-week uh, intensive, like you know, ten-hour a day kind of days. Worth it for me, you know. Your mileage may vary. So you had to work to get permission to offer the class, and I know that a lot of universities have typically stuck with the tried and true languages like like in Cade's experience, you know, with .NET, Java is another big one out there. What was that conversation like when you were talking to your college folks to say, hey, I, w- I want to teach a course on distributed programming in a language that's about, you know, f- six years old, you know, <laughs> not not very old at all. And uh, what was that conversation like?
3: Thankfully, I work with fantastic peers that recognize just because it's been around a long time doesn't necessarily make it better likewise just because it's brand new doesn't necessarily make it better and and so we respect our, our individual backgrounds and capabilities and expertise and there's a feeling that if if you're the one teaching the class you kind of to a large degree you own the right you you own the material there are the, the college has officially approved syllabi that that specify certain points or or principles right learning outcomes that have to be achieved and so, within those learning outcomes, you know, you, you do have a lot of leeway. And so, our conversations were were along the lines of, hey, you know, I, I could still just as well achieve these learning outcomes using this different language. And at the same time, they would also get experience to these other things, which don't necessarily have quite as much, uh, you know, airtime in the program. We don't get a lot of opportunity to work with functional languages
0: well, this might be a good time to kind of jump into this idea of what was it like teaching this in the classroom setting. A lot of the listeners to this podcast are perhaps early in their Elixir journey. So what resources did you find helpful for helping the students kind of come up to speed and, and getting, you know, their, their first initial exposure to this?
3: Well, there were uh, a refreshingly large amount of, of very valuable resources Certainly, Mark, your Thinking Elixir uh, program is wonderful. That was valuable. We got all of our students to to go through those courses. I also did Prag Dave's Elixir course. I found a lot of the Groxio videos on YouTube come to mind. Those were, those were really valuable. Not to mention just the Elixir docs, right? Probably the, the book I enjoyed the most was, what is it, Sasha Ulrich's
0: Elixir in action. Yeah, right?
3: Elixir in Action. That's the one. We went through that one in the class. And as far as how it was how it went teaching it in the class, it was really stressful, right? Because I was brand new to the language. I was maybe a month ahead of the students. And so oftentimes, right, they'd say, Hey, how do you do this? And I'd say, I'm not really sure. <laughs> I'll get back to you tomorrow. Or <laughs> let's let's figure that out today. So we had in the beginning of our class, students would take turns sharing a library that that they would have to research and then present to the class, right? Different libraries for for making REST calls, or different libraries for working, or, or just the the built-in libraries, right? Like this is how you use this function, whatever. Um, so we'd have a section of that, and would have a section where someone would share an article or a, a podcast about Elixir, right? To kind of help us broaden our understanding of of what's out there and our exposure. Um, so it wasn't, thankfully, just me lecturing and, and demonstrating the, the lack of my knowledge.
0: Now, I can imagine that being very intimidating. You know, you are, you know you're supposed to be like the, the instructor, the person who knows everything. But I, I think that's cool that you came from the, a, a working practical experience background because that's part of programming, right? Is that we don't know everything. Even at, when we've been doing it for 15 years, we don't know everything. So, I think that's that's cool, but that can be very intimidating. So, I don't know. Are there any tips or advice that you would have for other teachers who are thinking about doing something like this and they might be intimidated by that aspect of it?
3: Oh, I don't necessarily feel qualified to give tips to other instructors. I I feel most anyone would do a better job teaching than I do. Uh, I, I just noticed there's a definite change in the air. In the the feeling in the room when things stop being fun, you can tell when uh, when it starts getting boring. Try to avoid that. That's all I'd say.
0: So, how was this for the students? Did you get a sense where they're they're struggling at any particular points? Maybe it's the concepts of functional, or kind of where were they struggling, and what was it like for them?
3: Well, we we all struggled a lot, right? It it is different from everything else that they've had in the program so far you know was your traditional computer science right we they started with c++ on their introductory levels and some of the we had begun a process of moving things over to to c sharp um just this semester we started teaching c sharp for our introductory levels and and we'll be using that throughout the course so their background was was c++ and then they had had a Java class and a C-sharp class. And so coming to Functional programming was was difficult for them, right? It's, it, it involves a, a change in how you think about solving problems. We tried to maintain a balance of pushing hard enough and fast enough that, that it never felt slow, right? That, that you always felt like you had to work hard to keep up, but not go so far that you felt like you were drowning and there was no hope and right all the fun gets sucked away. But it, it definitely was a, a challenge.
0: Was there anything in particular that they seem to really enjoy about Elixir as a language?
3: It's really fun to see how a couple of lines in Elixir can do something that would have taken a whole bunch of code in another language, right? That's just super fun. When When you come up with a solution to a problem that just is beautiful, right? It's simple, and it's elegant, and it's easy to follow, and it's totally testable. There's a very real sense of satisfaction that comes with that.
0: So having gone through that process, you know, feeling that you needed to justify offering the course, do you feel it was successful by the end of it?
3: I do. You know, it's been fun since then. It it was last uh spring that that I taught that, and there have been many occasions this fall semester where the class of students that went through that, there are seniors now. Where either in reading other materials and in the, you know, following classes that I have with them or just in in other conversations where functional programming comes up, right? Where Erlang comes up, where the actor model comes up and they have experience that lets them identify with those topics, right? When when they come across a a paragraph in a book that talks about that, they know, yeah, I, I know exactly what he's talking about. I have experience there. I've done that. And and I get why that's valuable, right? In this context of whatever it is we're discussing, I, I understand why that's applicable and and how that's beneficial. So I I think it was it was good for them.
1: I know that some of the slog of getting a language and its ecosystem up and running on P- on students' you know anyone's computer really could be a real barrier to learning. I'm curious did you did you happen to find that Elixir was easier to set up on on student computers versus other languages in the past that you've used
3: well the only other language that i've taught is uh is c sharp you know with with net core you just install the net core sdk and vs code and you're good right uh, or if you as soon as you can get visual studio on the box then you're good right there's not a lot to do with with net and i felt elixir was was equally approachable right it was it was just as easy to set up You you get uh, Elixir installed, and you get uh, VS Code with Elixir LS extension, and you're off to the races, right? There's there's not a lot of other stuff that you need.
1: And and what about the ecosystem around it too? Like testing or linting? Do you guys even talk about linting? Did you find any differences there? I assume that testing is probably a big part of the course.
3: Testing is a big part of the course. I have a particular uh, affinity towards um, BDD and and you know Gherkin based tests. Using SpecFlow on .net, and so I was excited that uh, without too much trouble I could have BDD style acceptance tests on my Elixir code. That that took a little bit of of working. The, the Elixir LS extension did enough linting for for us that that seemed helpful enough. Maybe I was missing out on on some other tools. Uh,
1: the only one I can really think of is Credo, or in mix mix format, which is which is built in.
0: Well, Jonathan, in business, typically I've been an early adopter of languages. I was pretty early adopting Ruby on Rails, coming from a C sharp background. And I've been pretty early adopting Elixir. It's just kind of like my nature. And I'm usually self motivated to learn these things and I I go deep on them. So I'm not jumping around to like, oh, here's Go, here's, here's Rust. I'm not jumping around a lot. So I I usually pick something and go deep, but I'm fairly early at it. So frankly, when I think of recruiting, I have not ever really thought about uh going to you know job fairs or colleges like that uh, do you think that's a good thing that more of us in the the professional working space should be looking to do to like partner with local colleges?
3: I think you should certainly partner with our college. I don't know why you wouldn't want to to luck there. It's hard to find good developers and in my professional experience, you know before I came to higher education, we had fantastic results getting younger junior developers and then being able to train them up kind of in our culture in our the way that we did things
0: that's true. I guess they're not coming with a lot of baggage that might be good or bad, but, you know, habits and things. So you can kind of teach them what you value. Exactly. So earlier in the show, you talked about the advisory committee or group where they're working with business partners who are... They're in the working space and they're saying, hey, this is what we're looking for. This is what we're needing. Is that something we should be doing as businesses, trying to get involved more? Just like for a little bit of background, uh, I went to university. One of the local businesses was a large credit card processing. And they had a lot of COBOL, and so we had a COBOL program at the university because they valued that, and they were a big employer too, you know. So I think that makes sense, you know, for them to have an interest in helping people come in with some exposure to their languages. But you know, it's not something I've really considered and thought about, and I'm wondering if we should be thinking about that, like partnering with, you know, how do we get into an advisory committee or something like that to say, hey, we are a large employer. And these are the technologies we're using we would like the curriculum to reflect this in some way well of
3: course it's a good idea you, you hear all the time about businesses complaining about uh, universities churning out unqualified graduates right and, and there's always conversation about what a poor job our colleges and universities are doing of giving us applicable you know relevant training and preparation for the marketplace right so you can keep griping about it or you can try to to change that so uh to whatever extent organizations can involve themselves in in an advisory role would be awesome. As far as getting your foot in the door and getting them to listen to you, right, that your, your mileage may vary. I really don't have any experience to speak to how, how to get into other schools. But contacting instructors and finding department chairs would probably be the best first step and see if they already have an advisory board in place. Right? If they don't, maybe you talk to the dean or the provost and put a bug in their ear it's it's certainly been very valuable and informative for us in our program I, I can't speak to to other schools and other programs
0: well that's really good to hear I was just thinking about this recently when we we're preparing for this conversation. I was reminded of a friend who's he's like a CTO of a company sold that and has another company and uh, he has two daughters going into the computer science program at a local university. It's been my perspective that a lot of What is being taught lags what is being used in industry by one to two decades. And I know not all universities are that way. Like just in preparing for this, I was looking up different universities and some much more leading, very expensive, prominent universities have very current stuff. But a lot of them, uh, just as has been my experience, they, they don't. They tend to lag. And like his daughters, they're going in and their first exposure to programming is using C++. And I think you mentioned that that was one of their intro classes that, that you guys have at your school too. Personally, I don't know anyone who's using C++ professionally, because maybe it teaches some good things, but like it requires explicit memory management. It requires explicit use of pointers and understanding what those are. And as a first introduction to computer science, it seems like a really painful way to, to send people, you know, even just starting with JavaScript or uh, something more approachable would be an easier kind of on-ramp. I don't know. What are your thoughts about that?
3: Like I mentioned earlier, just this semester, we started teaching C-sharp in our introductory programming classes for those very reasons, right? that An argument can be made that from the computer science standpoint, right, it's valuable and it's important to have a lower level understanding of what's going on. Fair point. I don't challenge that. However, in addition to that, we, like you mentioned, there's some question about the applicability and the, the value of that language experience. And if there are other ways that you can get enough understanding of the lower levels without having to pay that price and, and chew through that overhead of the, right, the, the explicit memory management and the pointers and the other difficult things about C and C++. So, so we've made the move to teach, uh, C sharp as, as far as a typed language versus an untyped language as an introduction. There's a camp where. Are we going to introduce the guardrails and the the strictness of types later, right? Is is it better to start them off kind of in a in a loose dynamic duck typing language and then teach them about types, or is it better to help them you know get get types in their head from the get go and when they've got a sound understanding, then we can expose them to a more dynamic world after the fact, right? I'm not sure either approach is necessarily right or wrong. We, we've we chosen to start with C sharp, but I, I don't want to disparage other courses or programs where they start with something dynamically typed.
0: That's interesting. That's a good point. Appreciate that perspective.
2: And I, I think it also along with like what Jonathan said, like from a computer science standpoint, like I think it is valuable to know the nitty gritty of how things work. And I think also to what you said, Mark, like there, I think there's plenty of people that work in C or C plus plus, I don't know anyone like in the web space building like web servers that are using C or C plus plus stuff. Like that's your end goal of what you're trying to get at. Maybe that's not super valuable, but like from a computer science standpoint, I think it is valuable to know how computers actually work. So you kind of know what you're getting into rather than just having this really high level under- So we may use high level languages, but like we understand why so you can, you
0: can appreciate what the language is doing for you. Yeah.
2: I, I don't know if I would want to hire someone that all they had ever learned was JavaScript because like, they might not know why double equals or triple equals is are different and like why you can add, what why it's weird when you add the string two to the number two and why it turns out the way it does, why that equals 22 instead of four. And like, you know, you got to understand what's going on here, even though you don't have types.
0: Well, Jonathan, I would love any perspective or thoughts you have for us in the professional space of what we can do or ways we can be more involved with the education in that's happening in the, the schools and colleges around us.
3: The opportunity for students to work on real projects, right? Ongoing concerns, I think is, is really valuable and and commonly lacking in most programs, or at least in it, it, it has been in the ones that I've been involved with in the past. For example, we're working with a nonprofit organization that helps um, families of children with special needs. And we're building a new system for them to help manage their, their events, their activities, their fundraisers. And so it's something that the students get to be involved in an open source project that they can point to in their resumes and portfolios. It's something where they get the experience of working on a brownfield project right? I mean, yes, you can learn things when every assignment, you stand up a brand new project and then throw that away at the end. But uh, there's a whole different set of skills inheriting someone else's code that too commonly is is missing in the the university and college space that's really valuable, right? I mean, how many times in your professional career do you actually get to be the one that says, you know, I'm going to make a brand new project from the very beginning, right? Yeah, that might happen a time or two, but not nearly as often as you're going to get tasked to, mm-hmm. to inherit someone else's code and then have to figure out what's going on, and then keep in the back of your mind that the code that you're writing is going to be yelled at by the next developer who comes along, right? So motivate you to follow clean coding practices. Um so that is a, a valuable way that businesses can participate, right? If if there's our criteria for participation was it it had to be something open source, right? We can't just be Doing something that's, that's making you money, right? We might as well be your employees and get paid for that if we're going to, right? So if we're going to volunteer our educational time, it needs to be something open source, but having something real to work on is, is tremendously valuable. Coming up with, you know, projects that, that students come up with or, you know, gimmicky things. There's a real difference between, Hey, I'm going to write yet another recipe app versus I'm working on a system that helps families of children with special needs, right? There's, there's a, an added weight and significance to that project. You, you care more about it.
0: That's really cool. I like the idea of it being open source, because that is something that someone can say, here is my GitHub ID. You can see the commits that I've done as a way of showing what I'm able to work with. And I also totally appreciate that idea of when I have code that's long lived, as opposed to those quick projects that you kind of create and throw away. It's the long-lived ones where you're coming back to your code six months or a year later, and you're continuing to learn and develop yourself in your language skills and just exposure to things. And you think about things differently. And you come back to your own code, and you're like, dang, this sucks. (laughs) It teaches a different level of skill and just uh, maybe an empathy to other people's code as well. So I I like that. And I I can see how that would be a hard thing to be able to convey in an education space. Well, Jonathan, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us and and come share some of this perspective about education. Because I know, in the working space, as you mentioned, sometimes businesses can kind of complain about uh, what's going on in the education space, how it does or doesn't match up with uh, different skills and things. But I also appreciate, you know, challenging me and my perspective a little bit on what involvement should I be having in that. You know, knowing that I can have an involvement in the local schools and and working with the instructors. And so I think that's great. Uh, so if people want to follow you online or get in touch with you about anything that we discussed here, what's the best way for them to do that?
3: Oh, I'm, I'm not uh, particularly fancy. I'm not on Twitter or anything, but you can always email me, jallen at snow.edu. All right. And
0: we'll have a link to that in the show notes. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening. We hope you'll join us next time on Thinking Elixir. <laughs>